Chapter Six of Women on the American Frontier. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Women on the American Frontier by William W. Fowler. Chapter Six. Patriot Women of the Revolution. During the dangers and trials of early colonial life, the daughters learned from the example of their mothers the lesson and the power of self-trust. They learned to endure what their parents endured. To face the perils which environed the settlement or the household, and grew up to woman's estate, versed in that knowledge and experience of border life, which well fitted them to repeat in wilder and more perilous scenes the heroism of their forefathers and foremothers. The daughters again taught these, and added other lessons to their children. The granddaughters of the first emigrants seemed to possess, with the traits and virtues of woman. The wisdom, courage, and strength of their fathers and brothers, each succeeding generation, seemed to acquire new features of character, added force, and stronger virtues, and thus woman became a heroine endowed with manly vigor and capable of performing deeds of masculine courage and resolution. The generation of daughters, fourth and descendant from the first settlers, lived during the stormy days of the Revolution. And right worthily did they perform their part on that stage of action, and prove by their deeds that they were lineal descendants of the first mothers of the republic. If we were to analyze the characters and motives of the women who lived and acted in that great crisis of our history, we should better understand and appreciate, in its nature, height, and breadth, their singular patriotism, untainted by selfish ambition. Undefiled by greed of gain, and purged of the earthy dross that too often alloys the lofty impulses of soldiers and statesmen in the path of fame, hers was a love of country that looked not for gain or glory, imperiled much, and was locked fast in a bitter companionship with anxiety, fear, and grief. Her heroism was not sordid or secular. Dearly did she prize the blessings of peace. Household calm, the security of her loved ones, and the comforts and amenities of an unbroken social status, but she cheerfully surrendered them all at the call of her country in its hour of peril. For one hundred and fifty years she had toiled and suffered; she had won the right to repose, but this was not yet to be hers. A new ordeal awaited her, which would test her courage and fortitude still more keenly, especially if her lot was cast in the frontier settlements. It is easy to see that border life, in the times that tried men's souls, was surrounded by double dangers and hardships. Indeed, it is difficult to conceive of a more trying situation than that of women in the outlying settlements in the days of the Revolution. Left alone by her natural protector, who had gone far away to fight the battles of his country, exposed to attacks from the red men who lurked in the forest, or from the British soldiers marching up from the coast. Wearied by the labors of the farm and the household, harassed by the cares of motherhood, for long years in the midst of dangers, privations, and trials, with serene patience and with dauntless courage, she went on nobly doing her part in the great work which resulted in the glorious achievement of American independence. The wonder is that the American wives and mothers of that day did not sink under their burdens. Their patient endurance of accumulated hardships did not arise from a slavish servility, or from insensibility to their rights and comforts. 
they justly appreciated the situation, and nobly encountered the difficulties which could not be avoided. Possessing all the affections of the wife, the tenderness of the mother, and the sympathies of the woman, their tears flowed freely for others' griefs, while they bore their own with a fortitude that none but a woman could display. In the absence of the father, the entire education devolved upon the mother, who in the midst of the labors and sorrows of her isolated existence, taught them to read, and instructed them in the principles of Christianity. The countless roll of these unnamed heroines is inscribed in the book of the Most Just. Their record is on high. But the names and deeds of not a few are preserved as a bright example to the men and women of today. While the husbands and fathers of Wyoming were on public duty, the wives and daughters cheerfully assumed a large portion of the labor which women could perform. They assisted to plant, to make hay, to husk, and to garner the horn. The settlement was mainly dependent on its own resources for powder. To meet the necessary demand, the women boiled together a lye of wood ashes, to which they added the earth scraped from beneath the floors of their house, and thus manufactured saltpeter, one of the most essential ingredients. Charcoal and sulfur were then mingled with it, and powder was produced for the public defense. One of the married sisters of Silas Dean, that eminent revolutionary patriot, while her husband, Captain Ebenezer Smith, was with the army, was left alone with six small children in a hamlet among the hills of Berkshire, Massachusetts. Finding it difficult to eke out a substance from the sterile soil of their farm, and being quick and ingenious with her needle, she turned tailoress and made garments for her little ones, and for all the families in that region. She wrote her husband, telling him to be of good cheer, and not to give himself anxiety on his wife's or his children's account, adding that as long as her fingers could hold a needle, food should be provided for them. Fight on for your country, she said. God will give us deliverance. Each section of the country had its special burdens, trials, and dangers. The populous districts bore the first brunt of the enemy's attack. The thinly settled regions were drained of men and the women were left in a pitiable condition of weakness and isolation. This was largely the condition of Massachusetts and Connecticut, where nearly every family sent some, if not all, of its men to the war. In the South the patriots were forced to practice continual vigilance, in consequence of the divided feeling upon the question of the propriety of separation from their mother country. New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania were battlegrounds, and here, perhaps more fully than elsewhere, were experienced war's woes and desolation. But in every state throughout the thirteen colonies, and in every town, hamlet, or household, where there were patriot wives, mothers, or daughters, women's claims to moral greatness in that crisis were gloriously vindicated. If we were to search for traits and incidents to illustrate the whole circle of both the stronger and the gentler virtues, we might find them in woman's record during the American Revolution. In scenes of carnage and death, women not seldom displayed a cool courage which made them peers of the bravest soldiers who bore flintlocks at Bunker Hill or Trenton. Of such bravery, the following quartet of heroines will serve as examples. During the attack on Fort Washington, Mrs. Margaret Corbin, Seeing her husband, who was an artilleryman, fall, unhesitatingly took his place, and heroically performed his duties. 
her services were appreciated by the officers of the army, and honorably noticed by Congress. This body passed the following resolution in July 1779. Resolved that Margaret Corbin, wounded and disabled at the Battle of Fort Washington, while she heroically filled the post of her husband, who was killed by her side, serving a piece of artillery, do receive during her natural life, or continuance of said disability, one-half the monthly pay drawn by a soldier in the service of these states, and that she now receive out of public store one suit of clothes, or value thereof, in money. Soon after the commencement of the Revolutionary War, the family of a Dr. Channing, being in England, removed to France, and shortly afterwards sailed for the United States. The vessel, said to be stout and well-armed, was attacked on the voyage by a privateer, and a fierce engagement ensued. During its continuance, Mrs. Channing stood on the deck, exhorting the crew not to give up, encouraging them with words of cheer, handing them cartridges, and aiding such of them as were disabled by wounds. When at length the colors of the vessel were struck, she seized her husband's pistol and side-arms and flung them into the sea, declaring that she would prefer death to the spectacle of their surrender into the hands of the foe. At the siege of one of the forts of the Mohawk Valley, it is related by the author of the Border Wars of the American Revolution, that an interesting young woman, whose name yet lives in story among her own mountains, perceiving, as she thought, symptoms of fear in a soldier who had been ordered to fetch water from a well, without the ranks and within range of the enemy's fire, snatched the bucket from his hands, and ran to the well herself. Without changing color, or giving the slightest evidence of fear, she drew and brought back bucket after bucket to the thirsty soldiers, and providentially escaped without injury. Four or five miles north of the village of Herkimer, New York, stood the blockhouse of John Christian Shell, whose wife acted a heroic part when attacked by the Tories in 1781. From two o'clock in the afternoon until twilight, the besieged kept up an almost incessant firing, Mrs. Shell loading the guns for her husband and older sons to discharge. During the siege, MacDonald, the leader of the Tories, attempted to force the door with a crowbar, and was shot in the leg, seized by shell, and drawn within doors. Exasperated by this bold feat, the enemy soon attempted to carry the fortress by assault, five of them leaping upon the walls and thrusting their guns through the loopholes. At that moment the cool, courageous woman, Mrs. Shell, seized an axe, smote the barrels, bent and spoiled them. The enemy soon after shouldered their guns, crooked barrels and all, and quickly buried themselves in the dense forest. Heroism in those days was confined to no section of our country. Moll Pitcher, at Monmouth, battle-stained, avenged her husband by the death-dealing cannon which she loaded and aimed. Cornelia Beekman, at Croton, faced down the armed Tories with the fire of her eye. Angelica Vrooman, at Schoharie, molded bullets amid the war and carnage of battle, while Mary Hagedorn defended the fort with a pike. Mrs. Fitza, of Maryland, accompanied her blind and decrepit husband when taken prisoner at midnight and carried into the enemy's lines. Dicey Langston, of South Carolina, also showed a soul of love and bravery. Living in a frontier settlement, and in the midst of Tories, and being patriotically inquisitive, she often learned by accident, or discovered by strategy, the plotting so common in those days against the Whigs. 
Such intelligence she was accustomed to communicate to the friends of freedom on the opposite side of the N.O.C. River. Learning one time that a band of loyalists, known in those days as the Bloody Scouts, were about to fall upon the elder settlement, a place where a brother of hers and other friends were residing, she resolved to warn them of their danger. To do this she must hazard her own life. Regardless of danger she started off alone, in the darkness of the night, travelled several miles through the woods, over marshes, across creeks, through a country where footlogs and bridges were then unknown, came to the Tiger, a rapid and deep stream, into which she plunged and waded till the water was up to her neck. She then became bewildered, and zigzagged the channel for some time, finally reaching the opposite shore, for a helping hand was beneath, a kind providence guided her. She then hastened on, reached the settlement, and her brother and the whole community were saved. She was returning one day from another settlement of Whigs, in the Spartanburg district, when a company of Tories met her and questioned her in regard to the neighborhood she had just left, but she refused to communicate the desired information. The leader of the band then put a pistol to her breast, and threatened to shoot her if she did not make the wished-for declosure. "'Shoot me if you dare. I will not tell you,' was her dauntless reply, as she opened a long handkerchief that covered her neck and bosom, thus manifesting a willingness to receive the contents of the pistol, if the officer insisted on disclosure or life. The dastard, enraged at her defying movement, was in the act of firing, but one of the soldiers threw up the hand holding the weapon, and the uncovered heart of the girl was permitted to be on. The brothers of Dicey were no less patriotic than she, and they having, by their active services on the side of freedom, greatly displeased the loyalists, these latter were determined to be revenged. A desperate band accordingly went to the house of their father, and finding the sons absent, were about to wreak vengeance on the old man, whom they hated for the son's sake. With this intent one of the party drew a pistol, but just as it was aimed at the breast of the aged and infirm old man, Dicey rushed between the two, and though the ruffian bade her get out of the way or receive in her own breast the contents of the pistol, she regarded not his threats, but flung her arms round her father's neck, and declared she would receive the ball first if the weapon must be discharged. Such fearlessness and willingness to offer her own life for the sake of her parent softened the heart of the bloody scout, and Mr. Langston lived to see his noble daughter perform other heroic deeds. At one time her brother James, while absent, sent to the house for a gun which he had left in Dicey's care, with orders to deliver it to no one except by his direction. On reaching the house one of the party who were directed to call for it made known their errand, whereupon she brought and was about to deliver the weapon. At this moment it occurred to her that she had not demanded the countersign agreed on between herself and brother. With the gun still in her hand, she looked the company sternly in the face, and remarking that they wore a suspicious look, called for the countersign. Thereupon one of them, in jest, told her she was too tardy in her requirements, that both the gun and its holder were in their possession. "'Do you think so?' she boldly asked, as she cocked the disputed weapon and aimed it at the speaker. "'If the gun is in your possession,' she added, "'take charge of it.' Her appearance indicated that she was in earnest, and the countersign was given without further delay. In these women of the Revolution were blended at once the heroine and the ministering angel. To defend their homes they were men in courage and resolution, 
and when the battle was over they showed all a woman's tenderness and devotion. Love was the inspiring principle which nerved their arm in the fight, and poured balm into the wounds of those who had fallen. Should we have ever established our independence but for the countless brave, kind, and self-sacrificing acts of women? After the massacre of Fort Griswold, when it was found that several of the prisoners were still alive, the British soldiers piled their mangled bodies in an old cart and started it down the steep and rugged hill, towards the river, in order that they might be there drowned. Stumps and stones, however, obstructed the passage of the cart, and when the enemy had retreated, for the aroused inhabitants of that region soon compelled them to that course, the friends of the wounded came to their aid, and thus several lives were saved. One of those heroic women who came the next morning to the aid of the thirty-five wounded men, who lay all night freezing in their own blood, was Mrs. Mary Ledyard, a near relative of the colonel. She brought warm chocolate, wine, and other refreshments, and while Dr. Downer of Preston was dressing the wounds of the soldiers, she went from one to another, administering her cordials, and breathing gentle words of sympathy and encouragement into their ears. In these labors of kindness she was assisted by another relative of the lamented Colonel Ledyard, Mrs. John Ledyard, who had also brought her household stores to refresh the sufferers, and lavished on them the most soothing personal attentions. The soldiers who recovered from their wounds were accustomed to the day of their death to speak of these ladies in terms of fervent gratitude and praise. Another heroine and ministering angel at the same massacre was Anna Warner, wife of Captain Bailey. She received from the soldiers the affectionate sobriquet of Mother Bailey. Had Mother Bailey lived in the palmy days of ancient Roman glory, no matron in that mighty empire would have been more highly honored. Hearing the British guns at the attack on Fort Griswold, she hurried to the scene of carnage, where she found her uncle, one of the brave defenders, mortally wounded. With his dying lips he prayed to see his wife and child once more. Hastening home, she caught and saddled a horse for the feeble mother, and taking the child in her arms, ran three miles, and held it to receive the kisses and blessing of its dying father. At a later period, flannel being needed to use for cartridges, she gave her own undergarment for that purpose. This patriotic surrender showed the noble spirit which always actuated Mother Bailey, and was an appropriation to her country, of which she might justly be proud. The combination of manly daring and womanly kindness was admirably displayed in the deeds of a maiden, Miss Esther Gaston, and of a married lady, Mrs. Slocum, whose presence upon battlefields gave aid and comfort in several ways to the patriot cause. On the morning of July 30th, 1780, the former, hearing the firing, rode to the scene of conflict in company with her sister-in-law. Meeting three skulkers retreating from the fight, Esther rebuked them sharply, and seizing the gun from the hands of one of them, exclaimed, "'Give us your guns, and we will stand in your places.' The cowards, abashed and filled with shame, thereupon turned about, and, in company with the females, hurried back to face the enemy." While the battle was raging, Esther and her companion busied themselves in dressing and binding up the wounds of the fallen, and in quenching their thirst, not even forgetting their helpless enemies, whose bodies strewed the ground. During another battle, which occurred the following week, she converted a church into a hospital, and administered to the wants of the wounded. Our other heroine, Mrs. Slocum, of Pleasant Green, North Carolina, 
having a presentiment that her husband was dead or wounded in battle, rose in the night, saddled her horse, and rode to the scene of conflict. We continue the narrative in the words of our heroine. The cool night seemed after a gallop of a mile or two, to bring reflection with it, and I asked myself where I was going, and for what purpose. Again and again I was tempted to turn back. But I was soon ten miles from home, and my mind became stronger every mile I rode, that I should find my husband dead or dying. This was as firmly my presentiment and conviction as any fact of my life. When day broke, I was some thirty miles from home. I knew the general route our army expected to take, and had followed them without hesitation. About sunrise, I came upon a group of women and children, standing and sitting by the roadside, each one of them showing the same anxiety of mind which I felt. Stopping a few minutes, I inquired if the battle had been fought. They knew nothing, but were assembled on the roadside to catch intelligence. They thought Caswell had taken the right of the Wilmington Road, and gone toward the northwest, Cape Fear. Again I was skimming over the ground, through a country thinly settled, and very poor and swampy. But neither my own spirit, nor my beautiful nags, failed in the least. We followed the well-marked trail of the troops. The sun must have been well up, say eight or nine o'clock, when I heard a sound like thunder, which I knew must be a cannon. It was the first time I ever heard a cannon. I stopped still, when presently the cannon thundered again. The battle was then fighting. What a fool! My husband could not be dead last night, and the battle only fighting now. Still, as I am so near, I will go on and see how they come out. So away we went again, faster than ever, and soon I found, by the noise of the guns, that I was near the fight. Again I stopped. I could hear muskets, rifles, and shouting. I spoke to my horse, and dashed on in the direction of the firing and the shouts, which were louder than ever. The blind path I had been following brought me into the Wilmington Road leading to Moore's Creek Bridge, a few hundred yards below the bridge. A few yards from the road, under a cluster of trees, were lying perhaps twenty men. They were wounded. I knew the spot, the very tree, and the position of the men I knew as if I had seen it a thousand times. I had seen it all night. I saw all at once. But in an instant my whole soul centered in one spot, for there, wrapped in a bloody guard-cloak, was my husband's body. How I passed the few yards from my saddle to the place I never knew. I remember uncovering his head, and seeing a face crusted with gore from a dreadful wound across the temple. I put my hand on the bloody face. T'was warm, and an unknown voice begged for water. A small camp-kettle was lying near, and a stream of water was close by. I brought it, poured some in his mouth, washed his face, and, behold, it was not my husband, but Frank Cogdell. He soon revived and could speak. I was washing the wound in his head. Said he, It is not that, it is the hole in my leg that is killing me. A puddle of blood was standing on the ground about his feet. I took the knife, and cut away his trousers and stockings, and found the blood came from a shot-hole through and through the fleshy part of his leg. I looked about, and could see nothing that looked as if it would do for dressing wounds, but some heart-leaves. I gathered a handful, and bound them tight to the holes, and the bleeding stopped. I then went to others. I dressed the wounds of many a brave fellow who did good service long after that day. 
I had not inquired for my husband, but while I was busy, Caswell came up. He appeared very much surprised to see me, and was with his hat in hand, about to pay some compliment. But I interrupted him by asking, "'Where is my husband?' "'Where he ought to be, madame, in pursuit of the enemy. But pray,' said he, "'how came you here?' "'Oh, I thought,' replied I, "'you would need nurses as well as soldiers. See, I have already dressed many of these good fellows. And here is one.' and going up to Frank, and lifting him up with my arm under his head, so that he could drink some more water, would have died before any of you men could have helped him. Just then I looked up, and my husband, as bloody as a butcher, and as muddy as a ditcher, stood before me. "'Why, Mary!' he exclaimed. "'What are you doing there, hugging Frank Cogdell, the greatest reprobate in the army?' "'I don't care,' I said. "'Frank is a brave fellow, a good soldier, and a true friend of Congress.' "'True, true, every word of it,' said Caswell. "'You were right, madame,' with the lowest possible bow. "'I would not tell my husband what brought me there. I was so happy. "'And so were all. It was a glorious victory. I came just at the height of the enjoyment. "'I knew my husband was surprised, but I could see he was not displeased with me. "'It was night again before our excitement had at all subsided. "'Many prisoners were brought in, and among them some very obnoxious.' But the worst of the Tories were not taken prisoners. They were, for the most part, left in the woods and swamps wherever they were overtaken. I begged for some of the poor prisoners, and Caswell told me none should be hurt, but such as had been guilty of murder and house-burning. In the middle of the night I again mounted my horse and started for home. Caswell and my husband wanted me to stay till next morning, and they would send a party with me. But no, I wanted to see my child, and I told them they could send no party who could keep up with me. What a happy ride I had back! And with what joy did I embrace my child as he ran to meet me! The winter at Valley Forge was the darkest season in the revolutionary struggle. The American army were sheltered by miserable huts, through which the rain and sleet found their way upon the wretched cots where the patriots slept. By day the half-famished soldiers and tattered regimentals wandered through their camp, and the snow showed the bloody tracks of their shoeless feet. Mutinous mutterings disturbed the sleep of Washington, and one dark, cold day the soldiers at dusk were on the point of open revolt. Nature could endure no more, and not from want of patriotism, but from want of food and clothes, the patriotic cause seemed likely to fail. Pinched with cold and wasted with hunger, the soldiers pined beside their dying camp-fires. Suddenly a shout was heard from the sentinels who paced the outer lines, and at the same time a cavalcade came slowly through the snow up the valley. Ten women in carts, each cart drawn by ten pairs of oxen, and bearing tons of meal and other supplies, passed through the lines amid cheers that rent the air. Those devoted women had preserved the army, and independence from that day was assured. Fortitude and patience were exemplified in a thousand homes from which members of the family had gone to battle for independence. Straightened for means wherewith to keep their strong souls and their feeble bodies, worn with toil, tortured with anxiety for the safety of the soldier-father or son, or husband or brother, and fighting the conflict of life alone, Woman proved in that great ordeal her claim to those virtues which are by common assent assigned to her as her peculiar characteristics. 
We may well suppose, too, that ready wit and address had ample scope for their exercise in those perilous times. And who but woman could best display those qualities? While Anne Elliot, styled by her British admirers, the beautiful rebel, was affianced to Colonel Lewis Morris of New York, the house where he was visiting her was suddenly surrounded by a detachment of black dragoons. They were in pursuit of the colonel, and it was impossible for him to escape by flight. What to do he knew not, but quick as thought she ran to the window, opened it, and fearlessly putting her head out, in a composed manner, demanded what was wanted. The reply was, We want the rebel. Then go, said she, and look for him in the American army, adding, How dare you disturb a family under the protection of both armies? She was so cool, self-possessed, firm and resolute, as to triumph over the dragoons, who left without entering the house. While the conflict was at its height in South Carolina, Captain Richardson, of Sumter District, was obliged to conceal himself for a while in the thickets of the Santee Swamp. One day he ventured to visit his family, a perilous movement, for the British had offered a reward for his apprehension, and patrolling parties were almost constantly in search of him. Before his visit was ended, a small party of soldiers presented themselves in front of the house. Just as they were entering, with a great deal of composure and presence of mind, Mrs. Richardson appeared at the door, and found so much to do there at the moment, as to make it inconvenient to leave room for the uninvited guest to enter. She was so calm, and appeared so unconcerned, that they did not mistrust the cause of her wonderful diligence till her husband had rushed out of the back door, and safely reached the neighboring swamp. The bearing of important dispatches through an enemy's country is an enterprise that always requires both courage and address. Such a feat was performed by Miss Geiger, under circumstances of peculiar difficulty. At the time General Green retreated before Lord Rawdon, from ninety-six, when he passed Broad River, he was desirous to send an order to General Sumter, who was on the watery to join him, that they might attack Rawdon, who had divided his force. But the general could find no man in that part of the state who was bold enough to undertake so dangerous mission. The country to be passed through, for many miles, was full of bloodthirsty Tories, who on every occasion that offered, imbrued their hands in the blood of the Whigs. At length Emily Geiger presented herself to General Green, and proposed to act as his messenger, and the general, both surprised and delighted, closed with her proposal. He accordingly wrote a letter and delivered it, and at the same time communicated the contents of it verbally, to be told to Sumter in case of accidents. She pursued her journey on horseback, and on the second day was intercepted by Lord Rawdon's scouts. Coming from the direction of Green's army, and not being able to tell an untruth without blushing, Emily was suspected and confined to a room, and the officer sent for an old Tory matron to search for papers upon her person. Emily was not wanting in expedients, and as soon as the door was closed, and the bustle a little subsided, she ate up the letter, piece by piece. After a while the matron arrived, and upon searching carefully, nothing was found of a suspicious nature about the prisoner, and she would disclose nothing. Suspicion being then allayed, the officer commanding the scouts suffered Emily to depart. She then took a route somewhat circuitous, to avoid further detentions, 
and soon after struck into the road leading to Sumter's camp, where she arrived in safety. Emily told her adventure, and delivered Green's verbal message to Sumter, who in consequence soon after joined the main army at Orangeburg. The salvation of the army was due more than once to the watchfulness and tact of women. When the British army held possession of Philadelphia, a superior officer supposed to have been the adjutant-general selected a back chamber in the house of Mrs. Lydia Dara for private conference. Suspecting that some important movement was on foot, she took off her shoes, and putting her ear to the keyhole of the door, overheard an order read for all the British troops to march out, late in the evening of the 4th, and attack General Washington's army, then encamped at White Marsh. On hearing this, she returned to her chamber, and laid herself down. Soon after, the officers knocked at her door, but she rose only at the third summons, having feigned to be asleep. Her mind was so much agitated, that from this moment she could neither eat nor sleep, supposing it to be in her power to save the lives of thousands of her countrymen, but not knowing how she was to carry the necessary information to General Washington, nor daring to confide it even to her husband. The time left was short, and she quickly determined to make her way, as soon as possible, to the American outposts. She informed her family that, as they were in want of flour, she would go to Frankfurt for some. Her husband insisted that she should take with her the servant-maid, but to his surprise she positively refused. Gaining access to General Howe, she solicited what he readily granted, a pass through the British troops on the lines. Leaving her bag at the mill, she hastened towards the American lines, and encountered on her way an American, Lieutenant Colonel Craig, of the Light Horse, who, with some of his men, was on the lookout for information. He knew her, and inquired whither she was going. She answered, in quest of her son, an officer in the American army, and prayed the colonel to alight and walk with her. He did so, ordering his troops to keep in sight. To him she disclosed her momentous secret, after having obtained from him the most solemn promise never to betray her individually, since her life might be at stake. He conducted her to a house near at hand, directed a female in it to give her something to eat, and hastened to headquarters, where he made General Washington acquainted with what he had heard. Washington made, of course, all preparation for baffling the meditated surprise, and the contemplated expedition was a failure. Mrs. Murray of New York, the mother of Lindley Murray, the grammarian, by her ceremonious hospitality, detained Lord Howe and his officers, while the British forces were in pursuit of General Putnam, and thus prevented the capture of the American army. In fine, not merely the lives of many individuals, but the safety of the whole Patriot army, and even the cause of independence, was more than once due to feminine address and strategy. Patriotic generosity and devotion were displayed without stint, and women were ready to submit to any sacrifice in behalf of their country. These qualities are well illustrated by the three following instances. Mrs. William Smith, when informed that in order to dislodge the enemy, then in possession of Fort St. George, Long Island, it would be necessary to burn or batter down her dwelling-place, promptly told Major Talmadge to proceed without hesitation in the work of destruction, if the good of the country demanded the sacrifice. While General Green was retreating, 
disheartened and penniless from the enemy, after the disastrous defeat at Camden. He was met at Catawba Ford by Mrs. Elizabeth Steele, who in her generous ardor in the cause of freedom, drew him aside, and taking two bags of specie from under her apron, presented them to him, saying, Take these, for you will want them, and I can do without them. While Fort Mott, on the Congaree River, was in the hands of the British, in order to effect its surrender, it became necessary to burn a large mansion standing near the center of the trench. The house was the property of Mrs. Mott. Lieutenant Colonel Lee communicated to her the contemplated work of destruction, with painful reluctance. But her smiles, half anticipating his proposal, showed at once that she was willing to sacrifice her property, if she could thereby aid in the least degree towards the expulsion of the enemy, and the salvation of the land. Pennsylvania had the honor of being the native state of Mrs. McCalla, whose affectionate and devoted efforts to liberate her invalid husband, languishing in a British dungeon, have justly given her a high rank among the patriot women of the Revolution. Weeks elapsed after the capture of Mr. McCalla, before she was able, with the most assiduous inquiries, to assert in the place of his confinement. In the midst of her torturing anxiety and suspense, her children fell sick of smallpox. She nursed them alone and unaided, and as soon as they were out of danger, resumed her search for her husband. Mounting her horse, she succeeded in forcing her way to the headquarters of Lord Rawdon, at Camden, and obtained reluctant permission to visit her husband for ten minutes only in his wretched prison pen. Though almost overcome by the interview, she hastened home, having altogether ridden through the wilderness one hundred miles in twenty-four hours. She proceeded immediately to prepare clothing and provisions for her husband and the other prisoners. Her preparations having been completed, she set out on her return to Camden, in company with one of her neighbors, Mrs. Mary Nixon. Each of the brave women drove before her a pack-horse, laden with clothes and provisions for the prisoners. These errands of mercy were repeated every month, often in company with other women who were engaged in similar missions, and sometimes alone. Meanwhile she did not relax her efforts to effect the release of her husband. After many months she succeeded in procuring an order for the discharge of her husband with ten other prisoners, whose handcuffs and ankle-chains were knocked off, and who left the prison in company with their heroic liberator. Examples are not wanting, in our revolutionary annals, of a stern and lofty spirit of self-sacrifice in behalf of country, that will vie with that displayed by the first Brutus. We are told by the orator of the Society of the Cincinnati, that when the British officers presented to Mrs. Rebecca Edwards the mandate which arrested her sons as objects of retaliation, less sensitive of private affection than attached to her honor and the interest of her country, she stifled the tender feelings of the mother, and heroically bade them despise the threats of their enemies, and steadfastly persist to support the glorious cause in which they had engaged, that if the threatened sacrifice should follow, they would carry a parent's blessing, and the good opinion of every virtuous citizen with them, to the grave. But if from the frailty of human nature, of the possibility of which she would not suffer an idea to enter her mind, they were disposed to temporize and exchange this liberty for safety, they must forget her as a mother, nor subject her to the misery of ever beholding them again. 
As among the early Puritan settlers, so among the women of the Revolution, nothing was more remarkable than their belief in the efficacy of prayer. In the solitude of their homes, in the cool and silence of the forest, and in the presence of the foe, Christian women knelt down and prayed for peace, for victory, for rescue from danger, and for deliverance from the enemies which beset them. Can we doubt that the prayers of these noble patriot women were answered? Early in the Revolutionary War, the historian of the border relates that the inhabitants of the frontier of Burke County, North Carolina, being apprehensive of an attack by the Indians, it was determined to seek protection in a fort in a more densely populated neighborhood, in an interior settlement. A party of soldiers was sent to protect them on their retreat. The families assembled, the line of march was taken towards their place of destination, and they proceeded some miles unmolested, the soldiers forming a hollow square with the refugee families in the center. The Indians had watched these movements, and had laid a plan for the destruction of the migrating party. The road to be traveled lay through a dense forest in the fork of a river, where the Indians concealed themselves and waited till the travelers were in the desired spot. Suddenly the war-whoop sounded in front and on either side. A large body of painted warriors rushed in, filling the gap by which the whites had entered, and an appalling crash of firearms followed. The soldiers, however, were prepared. Such as chanced to be near the trees darted behind them and began to ply the deadly rifle. The others prostrated themselves upon the earth, among the tall grass, and crawled to trees. The families screened themselves as best they could. The onset was long and furiously urged. Ever and anon, amid the din and smoke, the braves would rush out, tomahawk in hand, towards the center. But they were repulsed by the cool intrepidity of the backwoods riflemen. Still they fought on, determined on the destruction of the destined victims who offered such desperate resistance. All at once an appalling sound greeted the ears of the women and children in the center. It was a cry from their defenders, a cry for powder. "'Our powder is giving out,' they exclaimed. "'Have you any? Bring us some, or we can fight no longer.' A woman of the party had a good supply. She spread her apron on the ground, poured her powder into it, and going round from soldier to soldier, as they stood behind the trees, bade each who needed powder put down his hat, and poured a quantity upon it. Thus she went round the line of defense, till her whole stock, and all she could obtain from others, was distributed. At last the savages gave way, and pressed by their foes were driven off the ground. The victorious whites returned to those for whose safety they had ventured into the wilderness. Inquiries were made as to who had been killed, and one, running up, cried, "'Where is the woman that gave us the powder? I want to see her.' "'Yes, yes, let us see her,' responded another and another. "'Without her we should have all been lost.' The soldiers ran about among the women and children, looking for her and making inquiries. Others came in from the pursuit, one of whom, observing the commotion, asked the cause and was told. "'You are looking in the wrong place,' he replied. "'Is she killed?' "'Ah, we were afraid of that,' exclaimed many voices. "'Not when I saw her,' answered the soldier. "'When the Indians ran off, she was on her knees in prayer at the root of yonder tree, and there I left her.' There was a simultaneous rush to the tree, and there, to their great joy, they found the woman safe and still on her knees in prayer. 
Thinking not of herself, she received their applause, without manifesting any other feeling than gratitude to heaven for their great deliverance. An eminent divine, whose childhood was passed upon our New England frontier, during the period of the Revolution, narrated to the writer many years since the story of his mother's life while her husband was absent in the Patriot Army. Their small farm was on the Sturl hillside, and with the utmost pains barely yielded sufficient for the wants of the lone wife and her three little ones. There was no house within five miles, and the whole region around was stripped of its male inhabitants. Such was the patriotic ardor of the people. All the labors in providing for the household fell upon the mother. She planted and hoed the corn, milked the cow, and tended the farm, at the same time not neglecting the inside duties of the household, feeding and clothing the children, nursing them when sick, and instructing them in the rudiments of education. I call to mind, though after the lapse of eighty years, said the venerable man, the image of my mother as distinctly as of yesterday, and she moves before me as she did in my childhood's home among those bleak hills, cheerful and serene through all, though even with my young eyes I could see that a brooding sorrow rested upon her spirit. I remember the day when my father kissed my brothers and me, and told us to be good boys, and help mother while he was gone. I remember, too, that look upon my mother's face as she watched him go down the road with his musket and knapsack. When evening came that day, and she had placed us in our little beds, I saw her kneeling and praying in a low tone, long and fervently, and heard her after she had pleaded that victory might crown our arms, intercede at the throne of grace for her absent husband and the father of her children. Then she rose and kissed us good night, and as she bent above us, I shall never forget till my latest hour the angelic expression upon her face. Sorrow, love, resignation, and holy trust were blended and beamed forth in that look which seemed to transfigure her countenance and her whole bearing. During all those trying years, while she was so patiently toiling to feed and clothe us, and bearing the burdens and privations of her lonely lot, never did she omit the morning and evening prayer for her country and for the father of her children. One day we saw her holding an open letter in her hand, and looking pale and as if she were about to faint. We gathered about her knees and gazed with wondering eyes, silently, into her sad and careworn face. For even then we had been schooled to recognize and respect the sorrows of a mother. Two weeks before that time a battle had been fought in which father had been severely wounded. The slow mail of those days had only just brought this sad intelligence. As we stood beside her, she bent and clasped us to her heart, striving to hide the great tears that coursed down her wasted cheeks. We begged her not to cry, and tried to comfort her with our infantile caresses. At length we saw her close her eyes and utter a low prayer. Ere her lips had ceased to intercede with the Father of Mercies, a knock was heard at the door, and one of the neighboring settlers entered. He had just returned from the army, and had come several miles on foot from his home, expressly to tell us that father was rapidly recovering from his wounds. It seemed as if he were a messenger sent from heaven, in a direct answer to the silent prayers of a mother, and all was joy and brightness in the house. The patriot father returned to his family at the close of the war, with the rank of captain, which he had nobly won by his bravery in the battle's van. 
the sons grew up and became useful and honored citizens of a republic which their father had helped to make free and ever during their lives they fondly cherished the memory of the mother who had taught them so many examples of brave self-denial and pious devotion and still as we scan the pages of revolutionary history or revive the oral evidence of family tradition the names and deeds of these brave and good women fill the eye and multiply in the memory through the fires the frosts the rains the suns of one hundred years they come back to us now in the midst of our great national jubilee vivid as with the life of yesterday that era which they helped to make glorious is with the years that are beyond the flood another race shall be and other palms are won but never while our nation or our language endures shall the memory of those names and deeds pass away in every succeeding year that registers the history of the republic which they contributed to build brighter and brighter shall grow the record of the patriot woman of the revolution End of chapter 6